Hello, and welcome to the Fantastic Minds podcast. My name is Kate, and I'm joined by my classmates, Tage and Matt. We created this series in an effort to bring to our listeners our deep appreciation for science fiction and the thematic elements that build our perception of the genre. We'll analyze a wide variety of media in this series, including books, movies, TV shows, and video games. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how different types of sci-fi media, including books, movies, and TV shows, relate to and influence geopolitics. So before we delve into our discussion today talking about the geopolitics of certain sci-fi media, we thought it would be a good idea to inform you, our listener, as to what the definition of geopolitics is. This is one of those things where there can be a lot of gray area, and depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different definition every time, which is understandable. This topic is very vast and important, so it makes sense that people have their own view on it. Our book lists one definition, and Merriam-Webster, on the other hand, defines geopolitics as a study of the influence of such factors as geography, economics, and demography on the politics and especially the foreign policy of a state. So, in short... In our last podcast, I talked about Ray Bradbury's short story, There Will Come Soft Rains. Bradbury is a renowned American author who is popular in the fantasy, science fiction, horror, and mystery fiction genres. Today, I'd like to discuss with you how the author utilizes a lot of geopolitics in his writings. I am sure many of you are familiar with, or have even read, Bradbury's 1953 novel titled Fahrenheit 451. As its name suggests, 451 degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature at which paper burns. In this case, it's books. In the story, Bradbury crafts a dystopian society wherein all reading material, including books, magazines, newspapers, etc., are banned from the government. There are even firefighters who will hunt down homes that contain books and burn them all. Now, of course, this is a dystopian future American society, but there is a reason why Bradbury wrote it at the time he did. During this time, during the 1950s, there was a red scare in America. This is when the threat and the phobia of communism sparked in the beginning of the tensions in the Cold War. In this sense, Bradbury's novel Fahrenheit 451 is heavily involved with geopolitics. And I'd like to include a quote. Um, This is from a 2011 article on this subject by David Fox. And in the article, Fox says, Ray Bradbury used science fiction to explore the art of the possible, to look into the future, but really looking at a reflection of what is already in front of us. And I just think this is such an applicable quote because Bradbury, and it's not even just this novel, Fahrenheit 451, but other books of his and short stories are really, really have a a lot of parallels with what was going on during that time. So this really relates to geopolitics because he can include messages in there. For example, in this one, Fahrenheit 451, he's talking about how the threat of um, people gaining knowledge by reading literature is kind of like the threat of communism. And 
essentially uh, Bradbury's take on what the future could look like, where even books are banned, all of them, says a lot about the current events that were happening at the time. So after World War II, we know that um, communism scares became rampant. And it was during this time that there were actually federally mandated screenings for potential communists on federal employees. And this made like a lot of people terrified about being found out, even if they weren't necessarily part of the organization. Um, in this way, we can see hegemony, which is a vocabulary word that we discussed in class, play out. So in simple terms, hegemony is the control or dominance from one cultural group or country to the other. In this case, the government here is sort of in control of the people in the book and in real life. So the government would be screening employees to see if they had any communist ties and people would even be turning in their friends and family members that they thought were part of the red or part of the communist party and this was you know, we talked about McCarthyism when I was in high school, and it was just fascinating to see during that time that you couldn't even trust, like, a friend or a sibling because you never knew who was working for the government or the Communist Party. This sort of mass hysteria we can see in Fahrenheit 451 as people hide books, kind of like people who were in the Communist Party tried to hide it, and then government officials or firefighters going out to burn the books, and in the same way government officials trying to find out those who were involved with um, communism and putting them in jail, that kind of thing. And i just like to see if any of my um, team members have any comments or questions on this. Yeah, Tej. Yeah, I'd just like to say it's really interesting how quickly society kind of accepted the government's lead. Like, the hegemony took like that yeah because there was panic mm -hmm. and it's interesting how much panic has an effect on uh, our acceptance of anything mm -hmm. yeah definitely that kind of makes me think about um even in today's uh world right now of course we're going through a pandemic and people will generally in this case we kind of trust what the government is telling us to wear masks and because it's backed by scientists and that kind of thing if it were something like during the red scare people are almost very wary of the government and the government is wary of the people where they're both sides are kind of fighting for their own um, i think that's really interesting yeah. yeah and then it seems like yeah no okay all right All right. In today's episode, I'd like to continue with my theme of uh, movies and look at The Men in Black. Uh, specifically today, we'll be looking at the very first Men in Black, which came out in 1997. Um, the general gist of the movie is uh, there's a secret government agency that's not technically associated with the government, um, but they work to um, help aliens... Uh, integrate into uh, society on Earth. Uh, so this this is a definitely a sci-fi piece um, that that looks at many different uh, galaxies, um, and each one has their own kind of 
traditions and stuff, but as they come to Earth, they go through this government agency and get acclimatized to Earth and uh, its society. However, there's this one alien who is rogue and is attempting to assassinate two ambassadors from different galaxies at a convention. And so the, uh, the men in black must foil the plot and... Uh, So with that aside, uh, the main idea I'd like to look at today um, is multiculturalism. Um, the movie approaches multiculturalism in a, in a very interesting sense in that each alien that comes to Earth has their own traditions and cultures, but then they are, in a sense, assimilated into Earth. Um, but they keep that tradition uh, in their own household. And in this way, they really kind of promote a sense of othering. Because as the aliens come to Earth, they are the other. They are strange. They are not normal. And they have to be, quote-unquote, made normal so that things don't get messed up on Earth because it is seen that Earth was is too fragile to be able to understand uh, such a broad universe and spectrum of ideas and uh, cultures and experiences. This kind of creates a, a really limited idea of like what Earth is and what it, it's capable of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kate? I have a thought. Yeah. So just going back to multi multiculturalism. Um, I think it'd be great if we could kind of break it down for our listeners what exactly it is. Um, so in this article posted by the um, website Items, it says a working definition of multiculturalism begins with the recognition that our nation's cultural heritage does not begin and end with the intellectual and aesthetic products of Western Europe. So I know that's a lot, but in short, multiculturalism rejects the model of cultural assimilation and conformity, which, within the context of our schools, has often relegated African Americans, Latinos, and other people of color to the cultural slums. So it seems like multiculturalism, even in this movie, is used to celebrate people of all cultures and to tell their stories, one, not just from like a Western person's point of view, but from their own point of view. Would I be right? I've never seen this film before, but it kind of seems like that's what they're getting at. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's definitely a a highlight when the aliens come into this quote-unquote immigration service. Um, They make a point of differentiating each alien and the way they speak, the way they look, the way they dress. Um, It's definitely a, a main point in the movie. So, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And Matt? So, yeah, I was just curious um, how geopolitics played a role within um, the Men in Black universe, quote-unquote. Um, and if you want to, if you could fill me in and our listeners a little bit more on how that plays out. Yeah, for sure. I was about to get to that. So, um, the way that this this use of multiculturalism and othering ties into geopolitics is that 
Earth is, quote, as I said, too fragile to handle these other ideas. And so the Jew, there's, there's too much of a, a differentiation. There's, there's too much other um, for a, a stable geopolitical climate. So the immigration uh, institution of the men in black, uh, in, in a sense, kind of assimilates everyone who comes through and really kind of takes away a lot of diverse ideas and really homogenizes the geopolitical climate of Earth. All right, so today I am going to be talking about The Hobbit and um, the geopolitics within it. So for those of you that don't know, The Hobbit um, occurs before Lord of the Rings series. It's kind of, they went back into Tolkien's universe and made these after the whole Lord of the Rings series was made into movies and stuff like that. So you might not think of The Hobbit as a very geopolitical area as much as you would Lord of the Rings for anyone who is familiar with both. Uh, I guess I'm going off of the films as I have not read the books myself, but anyone going off of the films, you see a lot more geopoliticism within Lord of the Rings rather than The Hobbit. But it's pretty apparent right off the bat that there's a lot of um, geopolitics at play here between many of the different kinds um, of creatures within Middle-earth. So I want to play a clip of the very first, one of the very first scenes in The Hobbit um, when all the dwarves gather at Bilbo's house and they're talking about the journey that lies ahead. So I'll play that real quick for you guys. What news from the meeting in that Lewin? Does he all come? Aye, envoys from all seven kingdoms. Ah, what do the dwarves of the Iron Hills say? Is Dane with us? They will not come. They say this quest is ours and ours alone. So right off the bat, um, this quote here, you can kind of see that there's a lot of um, geopolitics, even just between the dwarves themselves. So for those of you that don't know, this group of dwarves lost their home um, it is actually called, let me pull up my map here, Erebor, um, to the dragon Smaug. And that is the entire plot of the three Hobbit films is um, these 12 doors, a wizard, and a hobbit trying to reclaim this homeland for them. And so it looks like uh, Kate has a question. Yeah. Alrighty. So I'm just curious to ask Matt. Um, I have a very limited understanding of the Hobbit and other J.K. J.R. Tolkien's works. Um, I'm curious what the different types of characters are who live in the South and the East, and if that's something that could be talked about as the other when we talk about geopolitics. So in The Hobbit, um, there's not necessarily the South and the East. The dwarves live in the East, um, but there's the elves and the dwarves are really the two main, if you want to say, good guys, quote-unquote, in the movie, if you're discounting, you know, any orcs and trolls and stuff like that. So 
in the Hobbit, they actually have to go right through the Elvish land um, to get to Erebor, which is kind of a big issue for the dwarves because if you've seen the movies, you know that um, in the beginning when Smog attacked Erebor, they the elves showed up and they had an entire army on standby and waiting, but they did not help the dwarves and left the dwarves of Erebor basically homeless as Smog took their mountain and everything like that. So there's this really big, that's another one of the points I wanted to make on uh, geopoliticism in here is there's kind of this squabble between all of the elves and the dwarves solely because of this, what happened here with the Lonely Mountain. So back on the topic of the other that Kate mentioned, um, there's a lot of othering that goes on within this movie um, between the elves and the dwarves. The dwarves really see the elves as the other, you know, the person that wouldn't help them um, in that regards there. And the elves kind of regard the dwarves in the same way as they're a different race. They don't like have the same beliefs. They're, you know, they're really nothing alike to separate cultures almost in a way um like you would see from a person from canada and a person from africa in that way they're just completely you know polar opposites in terms of cultures but then the, you can kind of see them unite against a common enemy the other which would be orcs and goblins within here um so that's a a good reason for the other because they have meant to pillage and raid and stuff like that and they're always on the lookout for these guys but yeah it really does um there's a lot of the othering going on especially within this first portion of the movie um people kind of accusing one another and stuff like that all right and it looks like kate has a uh, another question as well mm -hmm. yeah so this is kind of, I'm wondering about when you're talking about the other, in this case, you're talking about the other in the Hobbit. And from what I know, the elves in the Hobbit, would I be correct in saying that the elves are kind of the most perfect in a sense, or they're described that way? Right, yeah, they're really um, described in the movies as just being this perfect kind of race. They live the longest out of all the races within Middle-earth. And they all they have really nice establishments and stuff like that. They don't have famine within their societies. They're really, in their minds, they're definitely the definition of the perfect society within Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just like to add, I found a comment online here from an uh, organization called Hobby Lark, and it says. Um, in The Hobbit, elves are depicted and treated by most other races as the definition of perfection. You don't hear about any physical deformities or natural diseases afflicting them. They age very slowly, like what Matt said, and then at some point seem to stop aging when they reach full physical maturity. They move with fluidity and grace and seem to have an inborn talent for magic. So I'm curious what... Um, how, what Tolkien was trying to say here in terms of the elves or if they think they're so high and mighty, but really they could, you know, the other p group could be just as amazing. And yeah, seems like Paige has a comment. Yeah, uh, just kind of building off of that. Um, it's interesting because they are described as this kind of perfect being, but then the first thing you hear about is how they didn't help. 
They didn't help the dwarves reclaim. So in that sense, the, the physically and societally, maybe they're quote-unquote perfect. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely shown that even a, a perfect group has issues. Definitely. Yeah, and looks aren't any everything, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's um, a really big kind of theme within here. And especially the dwarves do not see the elves as perfect, obviously because of events that have transpired. But the funny thing is the one connection that the dwarves and the elves have is kind of this arrogance amongst themselves that they're really like, you know, the cat's pajamas type of yeah. thing. Like they're the best race and stuff like that. So it's funny that they view themselves as so differently, yet they kind of have such a similar trait amongst mm -hmm. themselves. So to kind of wrap things up today, um, I wanted to look into kind of something that Matt and I were kind of both discussing is this idea of othering and how popular it is as a geopolitical idea in Hollywood film. Uh, a lot of film that we watch uh, employs the use of othering in its geopolitical backgrounding and, and building of the the climate of the movie. We use or sorry, directors use uh, othering as a way to relate how we as a society see a lot of things. Like a lot of things that don't, aren't quote unquote ours, we'd say, oh, that's not us. Oh, that's not ours, that's, that's theirs, that's them, that's, that's something different. And it's, it's really interesting how a lot of Hollywood movies use that geopolitical idea to kind of draw viewers in and make it a lot more relatable, uh, especially here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask if any of you had um, kind of any examples of, like, media, and especially if we can think of things that are, like, in the sci-fi genre of movies or literature that we see where the author employs this use of othering. Um, one thing that I kind of thought of, it isn't so much sci-fi, it does have elements of space because it's Hidden Figures, the movie that came out, I believe, in like 2016, 2017, um, talking about how these three black ladies who worked for NASA, um, they worked for NASA and they kind of served as the brains of the project. They were the mathematicians, the one who eventually put astronaut John Glenn into orbit and um, in the movie John Glenn, and um, it kind of made the space race something even more spectacular. This is something we, I never heard about these African-American women when I was growing up, and it's something that I don't think a lot of our society knew until people started researching this, and they decided that it was such an inspirational story that they could write a film about it. In the film, there is definitely a lot of othering, like, the fact that these people are black in a time when it wasn't necessarily okay to be black in like an all-white town and work environment, you can see like their colleagues are kind of dubious of, oh, are you really good mathematicians? Or are you really, are you sure? And they kind of prove them wrong. It's an incredible film. I really recommend people to watch it. And that's an example that I can think of. Does anyone else have an example? It looks yeah, like I Matt. 
I got one. Um, I think back to when I picture the othering, I think to what Tage discussed last podcast, actually, in Ender's Game. Whereas yeah. these oh. aliens kind of, they invade Earth right off the bat, right? And correct me if I'm wrong here, Tage. Yeah. And then the whole entire movie is solely about being able to destroy these aliens. And spoiler alert here, at the end of the movie, they actually do. They completely eviscerate the alien colony. And it's really this othering factor that they happen when, in all reality, the aliens weren't trying to completely take over the Earth. They were just looking for water, right? Yeah. So it's really like, you know, this huge othering effect that blinded, you know, the whole entire program and just wiped this different race completely off the face of their own planets. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It's it's definitely a very interesting idea and to see how that extreme othering plays out and knowing that that sort of othering has taken place and in a lot of geopolitical climates on Earth throughout history is is actually quite shocking. Oh yeah, this is Kate here. So I thought of another example that relates to geopolitics, another example from kind of sci-fi dystopian type, and that is both the book and the TV series The Handmaid's Tale, um, author Margaret Atwood. It basically focuses on this society wherein women are no longer seen as like people, as like part of the human race. And so for that reason, they're not allowed to read or get an education. Even they take down like the signs and replace them with like symbols because they don't want the woman even reading the letters on a sign to somehow become literate. And I believe... Margaret Atwood had some motivation for writing this, whether it be the history at the time she wrote it and that kind of thing. Um, the Houston Chronicle gave an, uh, a review on The Handmaid's Tale, and they said, Atwood takes many trends which exist today and stretches them to their logical and chilling conclusions. An excellent novel about the directions our lives are taking. Read it while it's still allowed. And I think this is just very, very fascinating. You can apply a lot of what Atwood is talking about. You can see it, you know, people who maybe they're shot down because of their race or gender and told they can't do certain things. And possibly they don't, people want their education to be stripped from them. I mean, there's so many things you can think about and apply them in your own life. That's just one of them. And I think there's this theme with a lot of especially sci-fi authors where they take events that are happening right now this kind of relates to like the politics side of it and put them in their novel to either frighten a society warn them to celebrate something if we're moving farther and farther ahead in terms of including people it could serve as like I said a warning for this is how the world could look like if these things remain the same in terms of like politics and that kind of thing so it's really interesting how they play a vital role in our conversations and how we perceive the world, our future, and politics. Alrighty, folks, thank you for listening. And um, we really appreciate having this conversation with each other and getting it out there into the world of Spotify and anybody who might stumble across our podcast. Today's episode I found really interesting, um, especially because we're in such a political climate right now and I think a lot of like books can help us navigate there is truth in books and there's truth that we can 
take and have conversations with other people during this time and um, to take action and things like that. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Matt and Tej, for joining along me on this podcast. Any last words? Or? I got nothing. I think we uh, think it was a good podcast this week. Yeah, it was great. Great yeah. to talk to you guys. Yeah, you too. Likewise. Well, meet us next time for our next episode. And until then, keep on reading sci-fi. And yeah, have a great day.